Well, good morning, everybody. I'm really happy to see as many of you here as there are. Um, lots of faces I'm not familiar with, so if you're visiting, welcome. If this is your first time, we're glad you could spend this morning with us. Um, I'm hoping that everyone's enjoying their summer so far. We're in the midst of it now. I know me and my family, we're going to leave for our vacation this afternoon. So we're going to go up to the Adirondacks. We're going to go camping for a few days. And uh, my wife has continually assured me that camping with a baby is a good idea and that nothing can go wrong. So I'm hoping we're going to enjoy our time. Um, this morning, we're going to return to our mini-series we're doing on the church in First Peter. And we remember a couple weeks ago that we looked at the church eternally in First Peter, and we saw that we were the chosen people of God. Uh, last week, Pastor Matt preached on the internal part of the church, that we're sojourners and exiles in this world. And this morning, we're going to look at the external part. And for, as a reminder, external means we approach Scripture and we read Scripture with an eye towards our call as missionaries. What does it mean for us going out and doing life and doing mission in the world? And this morning, we're going to learn and read that, as far as Scripture is concerned, that when we go into the world, we are to be priests. Our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. I'm going to read that for us this morning. It will be on the screen behind me as well. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray before we begin this morning. Father God, I thank you for your steadfastness and your faithfulness to us. I pray that you prepare our hearts and our minds and our ears and give us ears to hear this morning. Make soft our hearts to receive anything you would have us receive, Lord, and Help us leave here with a better understanding of how to worship you as priests. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the text that we just read actually acts as a pretty good summary for where we've been so far in this series. We read, but you are a chosen race. And that was the whole point of the first entry in this series, that we're the chosen people of God. And then we read that, we are a holy nation, a nation of sojourners and exiles being called to live in God's kingdom and not the kingdoms of this world. And this morning, we're going to see that we are a holy priesthood. And that's, that's our big idea this morning, that as Christians, we're called to be priests. And the roadmap we're going to follow this morning is pretty simple. We're going to talk about what a priest is and then what priests do. So what is a priest? Well, 
We all have some kind of idea or inclination as to what a priest is, but when I ask what is a priest, I'm asking what does the whole of Scripture say a priest is? What does the biblical account and the biblical story say about priesthood? And fair warning, it's a lot. This is a huge, deep, and immersive topic in Scripture, and it's a through line throughout the entire Bible. And it would be foolish to try and cover the whole thing this morning, and I'm not going to. If anyone wants to dig deeper, I, I know there's a Bible project series that just finished, the, po- the podcast series just finished, and the videos are just coming out on this topic, a royal priesthood. So I would encourage you, if you want a deep, if you want a deep dive into some of these topics biblically, I would recommend the videos to you. But this morning, we're going to take a admittedly limited scope. When we talk about priests, we almost immediately are thrown back to the Old Testament and the Old Testament priesthood. The priesthood that was begun by God, but started with Aaron from the tribe of Levi and then continued with his sons throughout the generations. Now, the main mission of this priesthood in the Old Testament was to bring people into the presence of God. And they did so by offering sacrifices for the sin of the people to cleanse them of the sin that had separated them from God. They would sacrifice bulls and rams and doves and burnt offerings to atone for the people's sins. And this would, at least for a time, restore them to right relationship with God, but never really a complete relationship. See, God still stood behind the veil. Some of us know that the Holy of Holies was a room in the temple, the room where God's presence descended and dwelled in. And that room was separated from the rest of the temple by a veil. And even the high priest, who was the only one who would enter into that room, would only do so once a year. So even at the height of this system operating and atoning for the sins of the atoning for the sins of the people of Israel, it still was relatively ineffective. It didn't bring people into close communion with God. There was still a separation there. Now, this wasn't the original intent that God had for his people. No, the original outline, the template, and the prototype was the Garden of Eden. We see that when we look at how the temple was decorated, how it was designed, every inch of its decoration was elaborate and was made to point us towards Eden. Eden is the first temple. Well, how is that, how is that so? Adam and Eve, living in the Garden of Eden, lived in the presence of God. They did life intimately with God. And what else is a priest than someone who lives and works and serves in the presence of God? They were told, they were commissioned to be fruitful and to multiply. But when you live in such close communion with God, what that essentially means is bring more people into fellowship with me. Adam and Eve didn't need to make sacrifices for sins in the beginning because there was no sin. It was a perfect place. And we know that that didn't last very long. Adam and Eve sinned, 
and the fellowship that they enjoyed, the communion that they were a part of was severely severed. Because of the brokenness that resulted from that sin, the brokenness that results from our sin, it was necessary for an elaborate system to be established to bring us back into the presence of God and to the priesthood from Exodus and Leviticus. Ritual cleanings, sacrifices, and holy days, all of these things were done to bring people back into the presence of God, yet all of them lacked the power to completely restore that relationship. The system was lacking from the beginning. It it was always lacking. And when we get to the Gospels, we see that Jesus does away entirely with the need for this system. We read in Hebrews, this is chapter 10, verses 3 through 14. I won't read the whole passage. I'll read part of it. But in these sacrifices, the Old Testament temple sacrifices, there was a reminder for sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and for goats to take away sins. And every priest stands daily at his service offering offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. By a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being satisfied. Jesus completed the priestly work that the Old Testament priests couldn't ever complete. Through one sacrifice, namely himself, he's removed the sin that would keep us from entering God's presence. Through him, we can enter and stand unashamed at the throne of God. The Gospels recount that at Jesus' crucifixion, at his death, the veil stood in the Holy of Holies, separating it from the rest of the temple, was torn. Symbolizing what had just happened, that the presence of God had no longer to be relegated to the Holy of Holies, but that it would go out and it would fill his church like it did at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes down and fills the church, God's presence dwells with us, his people. So, The need for priests is pretty much done, right? Well, it depends what you understand as a priest. If you understand a priest to be one who offers sacrifices for sins, well, yes, that vocation, there's no need for that anymore. But if we understand that priests find their source and their prototype in Eden, we see that there's a more powerful, more original intent than just offering sacrifices for sin. Jesus' sacrifice did not remove the need for priests. It allowed all people to enter into the priesthood as was originally intended. And it opened a way for priests, the people of God, to return to their true mission, the collective praise and worship of God. 
Our mandate is the same now as it was in the garden, be fruitful and multiplied. But there's an added difficulty. Generations upon generations upon generations have been born outside of God's presence or have fallen into sin and separated themselves from God. So in addition to being fruitful and multiplying, bringing our own families into the presence of God, we're called to make disciples, to reach out into the world and into the culture and bring people to see and know our God. This is when Jesus recommissions his people in Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission. He says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them how to follow me in obedience. I don't think it's a coincidence that when Paul talks about his spiritual disciples, he calls them his true children of the faith. Priests are those who worship in the presence of God and bring others into that presence. To be in the presence of God, by the way, is to worship him. To be in relationship with God, to know who God truly is, can only result in worship. And that's why a priest's true calling, if he is to be in the presence of God, is to worship. All of us are called to be priests and to worship. And that's why when we ask the question, what do priests do? We simply say, well, they worship. Well, how do they worship? And Peter gives us something here. We go back to Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. It says this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So yes, the offering of sacrifices for sin, there's no more need for that, but we are still to offer sacrifices, to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, what does that mean? Well, Peter gives us a little more of an outline if we go a little further into his letter. In chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, we read this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What Peter's saying here is everything, everything we do should be worship. We get into this frame of thinking when we talk about spiritual things, we put things into a spiritual box, and we're like, well, if I'm going to be a priest, and I'm going to offer spiritual sacrifices, I have to read my Bible, and I have to pray, and maybe go and do some community service, right? We should do those things, but 
we can worship with the day-to-day monotony that we go through. Imagine what it would look like if we redeemed the monotony of our daily lives and brought it to glorify God. What would it look like? I, I don't know, but what would it look like if you woke up in the morning and brushed your teeth to the glory of God? I don't know how you would do that, but I'm sure there's a way to. What would it look like if you woke up and you went to school, if you're in school, and you studied to the glory of God? You did your homework to the glory of God. What if you woke up and went to work and clocked into the glory of God and signed your time card with the glory of, to the glory of God and did the monotony of your daily work to the glory of God? What if you came home and cooked a meal for your family to the glory of God? What if you came home and just rested to the glory of God? Everything that we do should be glorification. I read recently in a book um, called Intimate Alliance that we have two options, really, in any of our interactions, to further glorify something or to grade it. There's no, there's no in-between there. In anything we do, we are either glorifying or we are degrading. So let's choose to glorify our God in everything we do. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 12 when he says, your body should be a living sacrifice. All things, everything you do. What's that look like for us this morning? Is there something that we should be doing that we're not? Is there something we need to redeem that has otherwise just been monotonous? Is there something that we are doing that we really shouldn't be, that no matter how we do that thing, it's not glorifying to God. As we're talking about using everything to glorify God, I want to take a moment to hone in on something very specific, a, very, a case study, if you will. And I want to do this because Peter does this, and he talks about it a lot. I think it's important If we are to be priests, if we are to worship God in everything we do, we need also to worship him in our sufferings. We need to steward our sufferings for the glory of God. Our sufferings are part of our priestly ministry. To help us enter into this, to think about this, I want to use a metaphor or a well, metaphor. Up on the screen, you'll see that's a visual representation, approximation of what the priestly garments would have looked like. These garments were designed very meticulously by God and outlined and said, this is what you will do to make these garments. These are the garments that the priests will wear when they enter my service. I want us to think for a moment and just really internalize the idea that our sufferings, the trials we go through in this life, are priestly garments that we wear in service to God. I think this is important 
really important because suffering sometimes feels so heavy. The hard things in this world feel so heavy because we make them part of who we are. We say, well, this is who I am. I'm somebody who is going through suffering. But when we remove ourselves from that line of thinking, we say, wait a second. Everything I'm going through, the sufferings and the trials I'm facing are not part of me. They're not part of who I am. They are simply the garments that I wear. They are how I approach my ministry and they're how I do the duties that God has set out for me to do. There's a great hope in that because when Aaron was doing his ministry, Aaron as high priest would not go home wearing these garments. The garments he wore would only be worn during his ministry. And likewise, our sufferings will not clothe us into eternity. When our ministry on earth is done, when our priestly worship is done, we will remove them. Jesus will remove them, and we will be free of them because there's no more need. This is what Paul has in focus in 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 16, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Those unseen things, those eternal things, that's the inheritance that we're promised. If we read in 1 Peter, starting in chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's where our hope lies in the things that are unseen, the inheritance, the promise, the return of Jesus Christ, and our salvation. In the meantime, we wear our priestly garments. But to what purpose? I'd say there's a twofold purpose. Firstly, they provide a foundation for our faith. And secondly, they are a primary part of our ministry to a suffering world. I was talking with my friend uh, Luke yesterday. He serves as a uh, youth leader at his church. And uh, he was telling me about a time when they took a trip to Darien Lake or it was an amusement park of some sort. And 
they had got to this big roller coaster and Luke was going to go on the roller coaster and he asked if anyone else wanted to join him. And one of the fellows who had co come with them on that trip said, yeah, I'll go with you. Now, Luke had never met this guy and this guy had never really met Luke. They hadn't really talked. They hadn't traded any kind of familiarities. This is the first time they had met. So they get on this roller coaster and they ride it. It takes about 15 seconds, Luke said, and they get off and after those 15 seconds, their relationship had completely changed. They were talking with each other, they were joking, they were trading jabs, they were, they were friends now because they had gone through something together. Can I say this morning that suffering simply, maybe, maybe too simply, but suffering is going through things with God. They're the things that teach us who God is. They're the things that remind us and convince us of his faithfulness. Something to look back on. Think about how God introduces himself to the Israelites. What does he say? He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He says, this is who I am. I am the one who has seen you through X, Y, or Z. I am the one who's seen you through the most terrible and the most terrible tribulations. He appealed to their shared history. He appealed to his, appealed to his faithfulness in the past. And it wasn't just about what God did for them, it was about what he went through with them. Sufferings teach us about God. They show us his faithfulness. They act as a purification and a preservation of our faith. We read this in the book of James. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we read this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We also read it in First Peter, in chapter 1, starting in verse 5, it says this, You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A little bit later, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want to sit with this just for a second because it's something that struck me. Often I think we think of our commitment of faith to God and to Jesus as a, like a one-time thing. God says, here's the truth, here's what you need to understand, yes or no. And we say, well, yes, let's go, let's do it. But that's not what scripture says. Scripture shows 
that God is guarding us through faith. Faith that he has inspired and built and tested and made steadfast through suffering. He's working alongside you to provide you with the faith that you will need to persevere. This is why James says we can count it all joy because sufferings are a mark of our Father's faithfulness to us. They show that he is working with us, that he is working to keep us. What an important, powerful thing to show to a world that's in immense suffering. That's why our trials and our sufferings are a primary part of our ministry to the world. We're to be priests to a suffering world by showing them the hope and the joy that we have in our suffering, showing them that there is something more than the trials of this world, that they point to something greater. And we do this because we're told to, and we do it because that's what Jesus did. We read in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. For to this suffering you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If we're called to live like Jesus, which we certainly are, we are called to suffer like Jesus. To entrust our souls to a good creator while ourselves doing good, as Peter will say. We suffer now, and we know that it's for our good, and it's for our benefit. But the world doesn't have that comfort. They don't have that luxury. They don't know that. So we need to show it to them. We need to point them to that truth. Inevitably, when you get talking about suffering, this phrase comes up, well, and it, it seems like an oversimplification sometimes, but people say, well, why do bad things happen to good people? And we could obviously say, well, there's no good people. Sure, fine. Let's rephrase the question. Why do bad things happen to God's people? Because God wants good things to happen to all people. The living hope that we have in the return of Jesus Christ that our sufferings are only a garment and that their purpose is temporary, 
that they will be cast off when we enter into our inheritance, into that eternal weight of glory being prepared by them. But they must serve their purpose here and now. That's the living part of our living hope. It's not a hope that dies and waits. It's a hope that waits in action. We must bring others into communion with God. And we must show them that the sufferings in this world are not worthy to be compared to the glory of the next. We have hope in our sufferings, and that hope has been made possible by the blood of Jesus. Now, as we enter into communion, remember the blood of Jesus a great high priest that paid the sacrifice necessary to restore our fellowship with God. And remember the charge that he's given you as his people, as his priests, to worship him and to bring others into his presence, to the foot of his throne. Let's pray. Father God, you have shown us great mercy. You've shown us great faithfulness. You've shown us great steadfastness. You've loved us so well. Lord, I pray that we would know that love, that we would see and feel that love, and we would know that it is true. And that we would tell others about it. We would show them the hope that we have and the joy that we have. I pray these things in Jesus' name.